hey, I just finished reading First Enoch, and I really want to talk about it. So do you want to have that conversation? Dude, why are you always coming with this weird stuff? It's not in the Bible for a reason. Just get out of here. All right, welcome to Your Church Friends Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm Yordlich. So we finally did it. Yeah. We finally did it. It finally happened. I remember doing it. It was great. But you weren't there for it. Oh. But it happened. See what happens when you just say stuff? (laughs) Immediately before this, you just told me, just sound confident, it'll be good. (laughs) So you're like, we did it. I'm like, yeah, we sure did. But we did. Someone finally listened in South Dakota. Does that complete our 50 states? No, we're still at 46, I believe. Let's see. We still have Idaho, Wyoming, New Hampshire, and Delaware. We're praying for you guys. We are praying for those states. <laughs> if you know anyone living in those states, send them the podcast and pray for them that they would listen. But yeah, we're just missing uh, those ones now to have all 50, and I thought that was pretty cool. That was cool. Yeah, but we did it. <laughs> yes. We- Why you say that I didn't do it? Well, you weren't the person who listened to it. Look, man, if I wasn't here on the show, they couldn't have listened to me on the show. That is true. So we did. Yeah, you're right. You did it. Ready to get into more Enoch? (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready to get away from whatever that was. That's for sure. (laughs) So let's get back into Enoch. I really thought we would be done with the Book of Watchers by the second episode, but... Well, when we were divvying it up at your house, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I said it out loud as many times as I was thinking, but I was like, that's a lot of chapters for all of the ways that we broke it down. I know that we were kind of just like, well, here's the general breakdown of the book, so Mm -hmm. let's try and do it this quickly. We're trying. We really are. Uh, The parables that come next might be equally as long as the Book of Watchers. Uh, But here's the thing about trying. It's like trying to do what? Trying to get into the next season. (laughs) That was planned way before this one that keeps getting pushed back. No, I know. But it's just like, how would I say this? Audience, I love you. I do keep you in mind when I'm looking at these things. However, I'm also just looking at something and having a conversation with you. That is true. What are we trying to do? It's just like, dude, you've been in so many conversations with me. It's just like, if this is how far it gets... That's how far it gets. Yeah. If anything, we are way more constrained in the podcast conversation. We are. We're way more ahead in the podcast conversation than we are in a real life one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, we're doing great. As far as like what we're trying to do, it's like, we're doing it. Yeah. Think about this. We're saying we're trying to get to the next season. What season haven't we finished and haven't we moved into the next one? We're batting 100. We are. I think it was, though, the idea that uh, so Luke would be the next season that we're going to get into was supposed to start in uh, March at least for us recording and then releasing. Right. And now it's looking like August. So I think a lot of my brain was going into like preparing for the Luke journey. Right. And then we were like, er, put on the brakes. Let's go into these I wonder what will be different though of spending so much time in the Didache mm-hmm. and in Enoch and in the Shepherd of Hermas to then go into a gospel and be like, how is this influenced and influencing? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I really think yeah. that there will be a way different insight to it than I know that we're pretty well versed in the scriptures mm-hmm. and we've become more well versed because of all that time in those forgotten books, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like we're going to have such fresh eyes coming to Jesus 
like, wow, here's all these things in those minor prophets. And here's all these things from these other books that were around at the time and came from that time. So I really think that it will give us fresh eyes to look at Luke. Yeah, I agree. Other than that, looking at it, I don't know if you're familiar with like liturgical calendars, but they follow a three-year cycle. You have year A, B, and C, Mm-mm. and the different years you, you line them up with, you know, the Gospels, and I don't think John, because he's weird. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, how cool it'd be if Luke lines up with the liturgical year. I'm pretty sure Luke is a year C, and we just started year A. Uh. So if we keep going at this pace, we can start at the same time. <laughs> That way, going through Luke, anyone who follows yeah. a liturgical calendar, like, yeah, this is what we're doing this year this anyways. This is what we're doing, yeah. yeah. Or we'll be ahead, and then people can have it for the next year. Prepared. Yep. There it is. All right, so Enoch. Let's get into that sucker. Uh, so I did a quick checking, and there were 19 allusions to the Gospel of Matthew in the uh, book of First Enoch. So uh, I think it was two episodes ago I mentioned that there's a lot of uh, Matthew and Enoch, or there's a lot of... Enoch and Matthew, or there's a lot of something from both of them. But yeah, 19 illusions just in that gospel alone. So illusions would just be like hints, kind of. I am aware of this thing. Yeah. And that's how I'm speaking of it. Right. It's not a direct quote, right? It's just mm-hmm. like, hey, there's a concept here and I'm talking about it. Yeah. Whenever there's things like that, I always liken it to if I've seen a movie and you haven't, and I'm using a quote from that movie in the context of our conversation, it might make sense to you in the way that it makes sense to you in our conversation, Mm -hmm. but it would make way more sense to you if you've seen the movie and you understand where I'm pulling that from. Yeah. You get what I mean? Yep. So completely get what you mean because that's like almost daily conversations with Justine. She watched no movies growing up. So I make like references or thanks to it. And she's like, sure. Yeah. But again, so that's why it's cool to read Mm -hmm. this. But going back to the thing of going through Luke or going through any of the books, because then you're able to go, oh, that weird thing. Yeah. That's where that weird thing's from. Right. I think we kind of talked about that last time. Yeah. And we'll get into some more of those weird things today. All the weird things all the time. Yeah. So today the mission is chapter 17 through 36. Uh, and this is the description of Enoch's journey with the seven archangels through the heavens, uh, earth, the underworld. Uh, chapter 17 and 19 give us a brief summary. And then the following chapters after that break down the journey in greater detail. So that's kind of what we're looking at today. I'm just going to jump into First Enoch 18, 13, unless you have anything on 17. Do it. All right. So First uh, Enoch 18, 13 reads, I saw seven angels there like great burning mountains to me. And when I inquired regarding them, the messenger said, uh, this place is where the, the ends of the heavens and earth. This has become prison for the stars and the hosts of the heavens. So uh, that is very similar to, again, Revelation 8, 8, where it says the seven stars, which were like great burning mountains, Mm -hmm. uh, that's echoed in there. Uh, The second angel sounded his trumpet, and this is in Revelations. Oh, oh no, this is Revelation 8, 8. Uh, The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea was turned into blood. So, uh, again, just kind of paralleling those same things, especially with the mountains, it echoes the same thing. And that's also in Revelation 17, 9. So a lot of what I'm going to be doing from this point is kind of there's a lot of like, here's where Enoch says something, but then here's where is there something that's very parallel to the Bible. Real quick, I'm going to back up a step, go up a level, just because where we left off last time, it was the doom and gloom for the watchers and their children Nephilim, right? Yeah. And going into this section of 17 through 19, 
it's a new break in the story, mm-hmm. right? So you just jumped in. You're talking about those the mountains and the stars. It's like, why is there mountains and stars? What happened to the giants, right? Right. So we're looking at going into this section. Enoch is taking a tour of the earth and of Sheol, which when we're looking at Sheol, Sheol is the underworld. It's a place of the dead. Uh, depending on your translation, might have been translated as hell in English if you're looking at the Old Testament. When you get in the New Testament, that's where you're looking at Hades is the more direct translation from that that would be translated hell, right? Again, it's just the underworld, the place of the dead. So Enoch is taking a tour of the earth and of the underworld. And within this, that's where he's seeing, you know, these mountains and these stars and all this happening, right? Yeah. Did I cover it well enough for this section? Yeah, Yeah. I think you did, yeah. Just Uh, to kind of give people a framing of like what's happening here. So it's Enoch being shown these things. And these are kind of the uh, the geography of which contain them. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have uh, 18, uh, verse 15 through 16. That seems to match Jude 1 through 3, uh, where Jude 1, th- mm-hmm. or Jude, not 1 through 3, Jude 1, 13, or Jude 13, whichever way you want to say that. Uh, they are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars from whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. And this is, again, when we went over Jude, I, I you read that and it's like okay that's there and it's talking about false teachers and false teachers making this comparison to wandering stars. I think we talked about it a little bit, but now it's hitting a little bit of home of like the wandering stars were the the angels who wandered away from their post. So on that point, I think that we've talked about it before, but star imagery, especially in the Old Testament, stars tend to be. Uh, signifying uh, divine creatures. Right. Right? So there's different places when it talks about stars. And if you're not aware of that, you're just like, oh, yeah, like the stars in the sky or like Mm -hmm. the heavens, like just as far as what we see and you conceptualize it that way. But when you understand that, no, that's how they spoke about divine beings, it does give that different view to it. Um, You don't always want to do that, though. Because sometimes it's li- literally just talking about stars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, I mean, there's also the in there the wild waves of the sea. Um, and again, anytime mention of sea is chaos, up. and then you add wild on top of that, that's the crazy chaos coming up, foaming up in their shame. Uh, they're just doing bad things. And then, uh, yeah, for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved. And again, reading that from Jude without having a context of this, uh, you read it and you're like, well, what does that even mean? Why are is this blackest darkness reserved forever for them? And it was, again, he's making a parallel between the angels who did the wrong to to what a false teacher would be. Right. Paralleling that, you get in Second Peter 2, 4, uh, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Right? You're taking that. That's kind of paralleling what you had in Jude mm-hmm. and what we're seeing here. And... If you're not aware of this, then you're, what are you working with? You're like, yes, the fallen angels, we know that they did bad, but what do you mean they got chained up in gloomy mm-hmm. dark? Like you're saying, like they're chained up in gloomy dark, they're cast into hell, and then you get this thing of, again, if you're not aware of these, or even how you break down, because you can get it from the scriptures where you get the breakdown of Genesis 6 is a fall of divine beings, and then... There's also a separate fall with Lucifer, you know, the devil, Satan. You're looking at that fall. But a lot of times, without a closer look, people tend to think, oh, no, the devil, when he got kicked out of heaven and those third followed him, that's what that's talking about. Right. That's when they got chained up, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's bringing some 
detail to those parts. Right. Uh, so that that's uh, those chapters. And then uh, First Enoch begins uh, the last uh, subsection of the Book of Watchers. Uh, so First Enoch 20, and that's 20 through 36. And this is Enoch's second journey. Um, and then that's where we have the list of the seven archangels. Did I forget something? You didn't forget something. You're just, you're going so much faster than I'm used to. <laughs> like that was three chapters. How are you done already? Um I need to get through 36, <laughs> I, 17 through 36. I did take a note or a couple notes of just um, some of the early church writers. Mm-hmm. You've got like Tertullian, Irenaeus, and Origen. And they were drawing kind of both on the Bible, but you can see First Enoch as well. Um, Tertullian, for example, in his work, De Cultu Feminarum. Yeah, I pronounced that correctly. Um He's really supporting the idea that fallen angels were attracted to human women, uh, leading to their punishment. Irenaeus in Against Heresies affirms that angels transgressed God's commandments and were cast down to earth. Um, And really, when you're looking at this, the concept of fallen angels and how that's had an impact on Christian theology, right? So we're looking at this, and this is giving a bit of a narrative to it. Yeah. But there are these things that, you know, between church writers writing about the things and how it's impacted how we view it um i think we talked about when we first got into it just there is a spiritual realm Mm -hmm. and it is more complicated than most people take it yeah yeah all right you can um did i have something else oh just beyond those guys uh the epistle of barnabas and the testaments of the 12 patriarchs make use of first enoch talking about the fallen angels um and the epistle of barnabas going back to how you were kind of saying in jude I think you might have referenced this when we went over June, but really emphasizing uh, the fate of the fallen angels as a warning for Christians to remain faithful. Yeah. And it is a weird thing. Not a weird thing. I'm glad for it. But when you see these angels were created good and were supposed to be doing the will of God, and then they turned from it, and you see how they went to Enoch and like, hey, uh, can you help us fix this? And God's like, nah, there's no fixing it. But yet we are offered salvation. Mm-hmm. Thank God. Anyways. Let's yeah. Go. <laughs> the most subtle thank God ever. Uh, yeah. Thank God for that. Uh, seven archangels. So Tobit 1215 mm-hmm. also has seven archangels uh, that says, I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stands ready and who enters the Lord's uh, glorious presence. Uh, this is also uh, referenced to in Revelation 1, 4 through 5. John says uh, to the seven churches yeah, in the, the province of Asia, yeah, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. So the seven spirits before the throne right there. That's also what we're going to see when we get more into Enoch, Yeah, that allusion to that right there. And it's when you look at the seven... And even you brought up some Revelation stuff, right? And Revelation 8, it's talking about the seven angels with the seven trumpets. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's definitely numerology within the Bible to where different things, I believe that seven is considered like the number of perfection or completeness. Yeah. So sometimes it's portraying that, even though it will use maybe seven as a precise number or things counting up to seven to portray it. What mm-hmm. it's trying to get across is like, no, when you look at all seven of these things together, it portrays the completeness of that thing. But yeah, when you see these seven angels in Revelation and you have these seven archangels here, it's kind of like, yeah, who would God give that job to? Right. You you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Again, it's just those things of the little parallels that line up and it at least shows a common way of thinking. Yeah. Throughout it. That there was a common thought. 
and you've got Tobit brings up Raphael, and then you've got in Daniel, uh, you got Michael and Gabriel yeah. mentioned as well there. So the first on the list is Uriel. Uh, so he's a very prominent archangel in the second temple literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's mentioned in uh, fourth Ezra or second Estrus. He was. Those are both good. Yeah. We don't have time for those. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get to Luke. We do. <laughs> Maybe after Luke, we'll touch more of that. Uh, but he was over the world in uh, Tartarus, and we talked about that in Second Peter two four. Michael Heiser on the over the world. Uh, he wrote that over the world doesn't mean that Uriel had authority over the earth, but rather the celestial sphere, which is over the earth through which he guides Enoch on his journey. Then there's Raphael. Uh, he's next. He's over the spirits of men and is a key figure in the book of Tobit. Um, over the spirits of men, there could be some connection with Luke 16 uh, here in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where Lazarus was carried by an angel to Abraham's bosom, where I read that they're making Did the connection. that's in Luke? Yeah, we'll get there. See, Tobit. Luke. <laughs> <laughs> we can read the, the we just need to expand this yeah. excluded book uh so that uh car- he's carried off by an angel and then the connection is that because of enoch that Raphael is that angel uh there could also be the connection to the angels at the tomb of jesus uh but nothing is concrete there mm. uh, but again that'd that, be interesting yeah that angel there uh ragul is described as taking vengeance on the luminaries uh, this could mean that he is responsible for the discipline of other angelic beings. Yeah. I'm just smiling because it sounded like you said ragu. Made, oh, did made me think of pasta. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did it the last time too. Uh, I, was, I was trying to stay quiet because yeah, you're saying yeah. good stuff. And I was like, it's like, don't distract him. Uh, I think that's just how my brain read it. Was. People listening <laughs> to this won't appreciate just your stupidity jumping in all the time. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but the pasta guy, he was over the angels. <laughs> it's going to take vengeance on me for that comment. <laughs> uh, let's get it to Michael. Uh, Michael, uh, the best of mankind, is looked at as Israel or the elect. Um, this would make sense with Daniel's reference as Michael, the prince of, of Israel. He's also mentioned in Jude and Revelation. I think we've covered both of those where um, in Jude, he's debating with Satan over the body of Moses. And then in Revelation, where he's fighting the dragon and kicking him out. You know what's interesting, real quick, just to go to Michael, because my translation, as I've been saying, like it tends to preference another thing and then have your translation in the footnotes. So where you have set over the best part of mankind in chaos, I have Michael, one of the holy angels, for he is obedient in his benevolence over the people and the nations. Mm. So it's weird, just like, how do you get those things? It's like, okay, the best part of mankind being over the people and then the nations being chaos. Mm-hmm. And kind of when you look at that, the way that after Babel, how the nations got split up and God took Israel to be his own specific people, and then you have Michael and Daniel being called, is he considered the prince of Israel? Is he named that way? I believe so, yeah, Michael is. Or the prince of Israel. I know they talk about the prince of Persia, which mm-hmm. again is over those nations. So you just see, again, that interaction there. Uh, I don't know, it was just interesting in the, yeah, in yeah. the translation. So then there, this one I'll probably have trouble with, Serial? Yeah, I think it's uh, Sarakael. Yeah, that, that's the two spellings. There's one that's, uh, so my translation has it S-A-R-I-E-L. Oh, mine is S-A-R-A-Q-A-E-L. Right. So he's over the spirits uh, who sin against the spirit. Uh, and then there's Gabriel oversees paradise and uh, the serpents and the cherubim. And he's also seen as a messenger throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. 
Yeah, and going through those names, right? That's where I was trying to link, all right, what do I know about Michael from the scriptures mm-hmm. and how does that line up here? And it's the same thing with Gabriel is that, okay, he's one of the holy angels who oversees the Garden of Eden and the serpents and the cherubim. Is that how you said it? Serpents and mm-hmm. cherubim? And really, you just see Gabriel showing up, yeah, just as a messenger. Like, I don't know, you don't see him in Garden right. of Eden. You don't really see him dealing with the other, like, you know, when it lists off the cherubim and whatnot, mm-hmm. it's just like, Oh, yeah, and Gabriel's chilling with them. Because uh, Gabriel's the one that came and talked with uh, Mary and Joseph, right? and Mary, yeah. So you do just see him throughout as a messenger. Which uh, is where I would think the way that describes Michael as being, you know, over the best of mankind or over the people and kind of being the prince of Israel, that he would come in and be mm-hmm. doing that. But I don't know. I don't get to choose what their jobs are. <laughs> I'm just trying to understand. And then the last angel is Remiel. Uh, this one's actually quite easy for me to say because the Remy in the beginning, just like my daughter or the Rem, uh, actually, yeah, the Remy with the I, uh, is said to be the angel in charge of raising the dead, likely a reference to shepherding departed spirits to their destination. Uh, Remyo's name is the combination of the ver- verb uh, rum, which is to lift up or exalt, to be high, and then L, which is God lifts up. So the name suggests God raises, as in the resurrection. Again, Michael Heiser says, uh, there could be some wordplay on the language of Isaiah's 52:13, the suffering servant, uh, that says, uh, "See, my servant will act wisely; he will be raised and lifted up, and highly exalted." Uh, so Heiser is just making some connections there. But those are the seven archangels that serve as guides on Enoch's tour uh, through the rest of the Book of the Watcher. Yeah. So now that we know the guides, you want to get into where he's being guided? Yeah. So kind of moving in this part, I've got, uh, this is Enoch's second journey, the preliminary and final place of punishment of fallen stars. Oh. So it's like, that's where we're going. That's where yeah. the tour guide is like, we're going to start here. Again, just to get an idea, because we're talking about a vision. And if we're, I don't know, I feel like if we're not giving descriptions of this vision, mm-hmm. it's just like, okay, what's going on? So I came to an empty place, and I saw there neither a heaven above nor an earth below, but a chaotic and terrible place. And there I saw seven stars of heaven bound together in it like great mountains burning with fire. At that moment I said, For which sin are they bound, and for what reason are they cast in here? And one of the holy angels, Uriel, who was with me, guiding me, spoke to me and said to me, Enoch, for what reason are you asking, for what reason do you question and exhibit eagerness? These are among the stars of heaven which have transgressed the commandments of the Lord, and are bound in this place until the completion of 10 million years, according to the number of their sins. I then proceeded from that area to another place, which is even more terrible, and saw a terrible thing, a great fire that was burning and flaming. The place had cleavage that extended to the last sea, pouring out great pillars of fire. Neither its extent nor its magnitude could I see, nor was I able to estimate. At that moment, what a terrible opening is this place, and pain to look at. Then Urael, one of the holy angels who was with me, responded to me and said, Enoch, why are you afraid like this? I answered and said, I'm frightened because of this terrible place and the spectacle of this painful thing. And he said to me, this place is the prison house of the angels. They are detained here forever. That's deep. Right? And you're getting in there, even here, like um, that concept of the levels of hell. Mm -hmm. You know, when... What's that book that we're always talking about where most people get their concept of hell from? Dante's Inferno. Dante's Inferno. Right, Dante's Inferno kind of bringing in that concept as well. And we see this here, and 
I'm just going to bring this to a point of reading to where I feel like commonly a lot of people are just like, well, a sin is a sin. And if you're guilty, you're guilty. And you're going to end up on one side of the judgment. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's like, well, if you're a sinner, you're a sinner. But I think that in God's justice, it makes sense that not everyone is Hitler. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And for different degrees of punishment happening, you know, for that. And we see that even with these angels is that there's a different degree happening. It was like, hey, these ones until the 10 million years, according to the number of their sins. So it's just like, that's how they're bound there. And then moving into this lake of fire. And here, looking at this lake of fire, that it was the prison house of the angels. They're detained here forever, which in the scriptures, doesn't it talk about the lake of fire as being specific mm-hmm. for the angels? Yeah. Jesus himself says it. There's a lot as we go even through the parables that kind of match the mm-hmm. same thing because the parables are very similar. Uh, but yeah, it, it, Jesus mentioned it himself. And yeah, in 21, we see uh, that it's Uriel who's saying like, here, this is where the watches are and they're going to be chained there for the end of days. Yeah, again, just looking at, oh, we're getting a view of the mm-hmm. underworld, and the primary thing that we're seeing here is the watchers and the angels that have sinned, mm-hmm. and that it was created for them. So, again, just taking this, as we brought up, Jesus talked about, I believe in Revelation, like, the the second death is the lake of fire, and that's, you know, where Satan and the devil, and but then it says, and all those who followed after, right? When you're looking at yeah. Revelation. Um so just informing our thoughts and giving a bit more to the story of, oh no, God God just made hell for bad people. Mm-hmm. He wanted to punish bad people. I was like, let's get that a little bit more informed. Yeah. In 22, uh, it's the underworld. Enoch sees uh, the mountains of the dead, Sheol or Hades. Uh, and then Raphael describes the caves as being um, for the righteous dead, the unrepented and the martyrs. So the righteous will someday be set free at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the martyrs will receive justice and salvation, but the wicked will perish forever with the fallen angels. And uh, then there's uh, Abel who cries out for justice. So there's Abel and others who are crying out for justice. And we see that in uh, Genesis 4.10. And this uh, helps with that term. Uh, it, it always kind of threw me when I heard your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always kind of just took it as like a, not like a illustration or just like a saying, kind of like a phrase maybe, uh, but reading it as like, oh no, the blood itself, like it's, it's actually crying out. It's crying out for justice. And Abel is the guy who's like in this realm, like petitioning all the time. Like we want justice for what's happened to us. That's also in the new Testament. It's Matthew 23, 35, and Hebrews 12, 24, and then Revelation 6, 9. In um, 1 Enoch 22, 9 through 14, uh, uh, we see there are the same concepts as in Luke 16, 26, the rich man and Lazarus. And it says, uh, And besides all this between us and you, there's a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go uh, from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over. So Enoch has that also in place where then that's referenced in that chapter in 22, where there's a, a great chasm that, you know, one can't go from the other to the other in there. So that, that was 22 kind of in a nutshell or a flyby. So I was just trying to look up the specific words when you're talking about crying out from the ground, because mm-hmm. um, I know there's a couple different Hebrew words for ground. And I believe that sometimes when you're looking at ground and you're looking at maybe the, the term for earth, that that word can be used as a 
allusion to the underworld. Mm. So that's where you have like the blood crying out from the ground. Mm-hmm. That just made me think when you said that, because like, oh, I wonder if like that's even alluding to like it's crying out from the underworld, you know, because that's what we're seeing here is like the spirits of those who were slain are crying out from that place. So it's almost like yeah. you can have a double thing going on there. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, his blood was spilled on the ground and he was buried in the ground. But then you have on the spiritual sense of what was going on. Yeah. Just when you said that, it was, it was making me think because I know in a couple of spots, that's how that term can be used. Yeah, I like that. Uh, chapter 27 is visions of seven mountains and their fragrant trees. Uh, chapter 25 then tells us that the mountains are the mountain throne of God and the fragrant tree is the tree of life. I don't know my brain is skipping out i could have sworn you said chapter 27 and then talked about 25 uh chapter 24 is the vision of seven mountains okay yeah yeah, just in case i said it backwards yeah something like that yeah (laughs) and the fragrant trees and then 25 it tells us that the mountains are the the mountains uh are the mountain throne of god and the fragrant tree is the tree of life uh so that was just fascinating to me that it's like okay uh especially uh i i don't I want to read it, but I'm like, we don't have a lot of time for me to stutter through Enoch 25. So I think somewhere in there we should put like um, a place to read Enoch if someone wants to uh, on their own to see if it's out there or just buy a book that has it in there. It's worth it. Um, yeah, buy, I know if you just Google it. There's a few different yeah. translations, even how, how we have different mm-hmm. translations. And it's fine. If you're doing it online, it should have a footnote that you can just click and see what the other thing would say. Mm-hmm. But I just really uh, liked the way that it was a uh, that uh, it was this fragrant tree, and if I believe if I'm remembering the chapter correctly, like it was just pleasing and it kind of brought life, and and so having that there as a fragrant tree, that the tree of life, you know, was it's there. I, I don't know. It just was a cool thing to me. Uh, Twenty six. They travel to the center of Earth. Uh, the description can be seen as Zion or Jerusalem. This is all was also the biblical thought in Ezekiel five five thirty eight twelve. Uh, and another way to look at it, since Jerusalem isn't the center, that Jerusalem was the center of God's interest, attention, plan on earth because it was the place he chose to establish his name and presence. Yeah, when looking at all of this, um, what he is establishing through this journey, it's interesting because um, there's so many weird details in it mm-hmm. as far as directions, right? Like there's some things to the north, the east, the south, the west, and you're really looking at those cardinal directions. And as you go through this whole section here going to 36 and you look at those directions, um, each of those directions are kind of given to an archangel, right? Yeah. You got to have an element tied in with that too. And that's something that when we're looking at going through this, even on a level that, to be honest, I don't think I'm well versed enough in this way of thinking. You know what I mean? Because he's going through and he's talking about, well, there's these, how to say it better to you? Like, we've become familiar with this idea that, oh, the stars, look at that as being divine beings, right? And we've been a bit familiar with, okay, mountains. Mm-hmm. Mountains, well, mountain of God, right? Mm-hmm. And you can look at that and Eden, even though Eden is a garden, it's also a mountain garden. And you can look at God being established on mountains. And so when you're looking through these things, like, all right, well, he's talking about stars, he's talking about mountains. But then when you're looking at how he starts to look at these different directions and where things are placed, there's a huge thing that comes in the second temple period of cosmic geography. Have you heard that term? Mm-mm. So cosmic geography, in a sense, would you would kind of bring in like the mountain of God type idea of just like how that gets placed. It's on the earth, but it's also heavenly. And, you know, you have those things relate. Um 
but it was a really big uh, kind of conversation and way that people were writing about during this time. And I'm just saying all of that to say I'm aware that it's a thing. I'm not enough aware of it to like get it to make sense the way that it's probably written to make sense. Right. You you get what yeah. I mean? Yeah, because when you look at those those cardinal directions and given the archangel to it, when you look at um I believe it's in Ezekiel, and you have the creatures and you have they have the four faces and everything, but then even they they are all like they're facing certain directions. Oh and yeah, yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's something of this same nature being Mm. translated there as well because of those cardinal directions and uh i'm bringing this up without the part to back it maybe this will come in <laughs> next episode i'm like i hey, man i i brought yeah. a, a better chunk to it but that to me is a layer on here that i'm just saying he's going through he's having this vision he's seeing these things but their way of talking about it is different yeah he's not just trying to communicate i saw mountains because he's talking about these mountains man they were marvelous and i was marveling and they were just like wow they were so amazing it's like okay yeah mountains are cool you know <laughs> like you know what i mean and what he's getting through there and you you brought up earlier the, the mountain being um the throne and then here when he's talking about jerusalem being you know being here within these mountains and this river flowing through um all of those things to be said right that i'm i'm just saying like man i wish that i understood this way of thought mm -hmm. better but I think that that's the same with any Bible study. You go through it and you pick up what you get up. And then when you go through it again, you're like, okay, I'm familiar with that. Let me go deeper into it. But when we're looking at this vision, you're seeing all of these great things. You have all these great things that relate back to, I mean, Genesis with the tree of life. You have that relating to in Revelation with the tree of life. And when you're looking at Jerusalem and it's talking about these uh, rivers, the streams that are flowing through there, which again, I think of Revelation, right, with the rivers that are flowing down from Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm making these ties. But then he moves into the next part, which doesn't seem as great, which is the, uh, in chapter 27, the accursed valley. Mm -hmm. The valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's even, uh, I mean, it's an actual place in the Bible. So we see that uh, the valley is located on the south slope of Jerusalem. That's in Joshua. Um, uh, the valley was the site of pagan worship in the late pre-exilic yep uh one that involved taking children there and passing them through the fire and again we've talked about that concept a lot with the forgotten books um because a lot of the worship to baal moloch and the other pagan gods that was a thing that you did uh, jeremiah was probably the first to begin to associate the place slash uh name with God's divine wrath and judgment. So he uh, does that because King Ahaz was sacrificing their children to Moloch there. So that's in 2 Kings 16, 3, 21-6, 23-10, 2 Chronicles 28, 3, 33-6, Jeremiah 7, 31-32, and 2-35. So those are all where Jeremiah is like kind of making the parallel with the actual place to the sacrifices and it being a place of wrath and judgment. Yeah, it's really interesting when you're looking at the actual places on earth and then what's shown in visions and mm -hmm. how that relates. Um, there is a section in First Enoch that we'll hit later, later. Um, the Book of the Heavenly Luminaries, mm -hmm. right? That's uh, chapter 72 through 82. And right now we're trying to make it to 36. <laughs> but 
this concept that's given there, we can kind of see a little bit alluded to within this area. And to bring it back to that point of what's shown in the vision relating to what's on earth, which is the way that God uses the physical to teach us about the unseen and spiritual in ways that are more solid than we might realize. And to use as an example, the Israelites and the way that they created the temple. And then within the temple, they had the Ark of the Covenant. And you have that going on and everything that they did through all of the rituals and the Day of the Atonement and all that happening, right? Then the book of Hebrews, you have it saying that like Jesus, when he ascended, he like placed his blood on the Ark in the heavenly place, Mm -hmm. the actual perfect and real one. And that's what was taking place there. And there's these parallels that happen between what God directs us to do on earth or how he'll use something like the valley, right? And it'll look like, oh yeah, the valley of Gehenna. Mm -hmm. And we can see what that is, but it's like, yeah, but that's actually what this other thing is too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just, oh, here's here's an example of it. Because I've heard that talked about with Gehenna. We're like, yeah, "Yeah, no, it's just a trash heap. And that's where they burn things. And that's where that was going on. But it's like, no, here's this spiritual reality behind that. Yeah. And again, to take that spiritual reality, because a lot of translations would put Gehenna back before and would just translate it as hell. Mm-hmm. And then you get this, um, okay, well, you have hell being Hades, you have hell being Gehenna, you have hell being Tartus, you have hell being the Lake of Fire, and you confuse all of them versus this valley being a different thing, right? This valley isn't yeah. the Lake of Fire that's for all of those angels forever. This valley is a different thing that's going on. Yeah. So that's where Jesus talking about that valley. It's like, Mm, what was Jesus saying there? And then what is it saying here in Which chapter 27? Which bring up a great point about the translation of Gehenna gets translated into hell because uh, throughout so much of the intertestimonial period, it's uh, still a localized place of judgment uh, bearing the name Gehenna. And that's in 2nd Barat 59 through 10, 85, 13, 4th Ezra 7, 36. And all of those translations, when I went to go look them up, said hell instead of Gehenna. And then uh, there's also a mention in the Maccabees of uh, burning the enemy's corpses in Gehenna. Uh, so it was a place. But in the New Testament, this is where I found it really interesting. Because now, like, okay, Barach, Ezra, Maccabees, whatever. Mm-hmm. Kick those out, right? Now we're at Jesus. Now we're at Jesus. Out of the 12 explicit references to Gehenna, 11 of them are in or parallel Matthew. Uh, but again, it's translated into hell. The 12 times, 11 of them are in, are in Matthew, and then they're all, uh, you know, translated to hell. So the term is almost always used by Jesus himself, except for in James 3.6. So Jesus is the one who's using the term Gehenna mm-hmm. all, over and over again. And it's primarily used as the symbol of the future uh, judgment and a place of physical and spiritual torment and destruction. But this part... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, which again... This was written before Jesus' time. People were aware of this mm-hmm. material. So when Jesus is saying, referencing, hey, the judgment is going to happen, be careful to follow, otherwise you're going to end up in Gehenna. And it's like, this is what would be in people's mind. Again, referencing that movie that other people have seen, that's what I see Jesus is doing here. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I do come back to, he has the opportunity to correct things as well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If he was like, hey, you're thinking about Gehenna and Enoch and you think that that's what the judgment is going to look like, I'm telling you that's not what it is. But instead he confirms it. He might tweak it a little bit. Yeah. But he allows that to remain, Mm -hmm. which I think, again, not that I think first Enoch needs to be scripture, 
but how it gets used. Yeah. So I, I thought that was really the interesting point of it, that like Jesus is explicitly using that term instead of hell. But all of our Bible translations, it's it's hell. That's the way they, they put it there. Uh, this I thought was really cool. So the field that Judas uh, Iscariot purchased and dies has been a traditionally associated with the Valley of Hinnom, mm-hmm. which again, Gehenna. Uh, the idea is that the pottery gate in Jeremiah 19.12 and the potter's field in Matthew 27.7-10 through 10 in Acts uh, 1.18 likely points to the same location. Uh, this is huge regarding... Uh, the New Testament's opinion of Judas's, you know, final state, his anticipated final state, is that it was in Gehenna. Yeah, which that's a question that comes up. Mm-hmm. Like, do you think Judas could be forgiven? Mm-hmm. I was like, I hold out hope for everybody. Yeah, because like that's just the hopeful part in me. But at the same time, uh, he kind of isn't talked about in that <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah. Talking about that and then bringing in how you're saying it's just like, no, no, no. Look at where he died and where he went. It just the layers, and I don't think that it's just literary layers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To where it's just like, oh, no, this is just getting a point across, but that's not really how it happened. Is like the reality of how things happening, layering on top of the reality of how things are. I don't know. It's just too much to be coincidence. Right. And it's too much to be, like, I don't think anybody's that smart to be able to weave that together in right. those ways. You know what I mean? And it's where, like, going through this, reading the Bible, and not having Enoch in mind, you kind of read this and you don't put any of these things together. Because, again, when we look at what's been translated and how words have been translated, mm-hmm. it's almost like we've gotten an injustice, especially when it comes to the afterlife. And even with angels, we see it all the time. Uh, until we cover Daniel the, in, with Nebuchadnezzar mm-hmm. and the Watcher, all my reading of a translation was angel or a messenger. Right. Right. So then it, we don't get these words like the watcher, these separations between certain things. Uh, and I could go my whole life with reading it without seeing these different layers of hell of like the difference between Haiti, Sheol, uh, Gehenna, because all of them are eventually clumped up into our translation of the word hell. And in addition to just that, as I've listened to different scholars and different people who know the original language as well, and I feel like this is especially true in Hebrew. But maybe that's just because I've heard more Old Testament scholars than I have really new that, mm-hmm. that bring out these things. But the wordplay that happens, like there's so much wordplay that happens yeah. because words sound the same even in Hebrew. So like you kind of say it this way, but it sounds like this thing. Mm-hmm. So anybody that's hearing it makes those connections. And when you put it in English, you just don't get that. Right. Which is where I can understand something like the amplified translation or something that's like, all right, look, let me really try and tell you what's happening here, you know, in, in a way that's not just a word-for-word translation, because mm-hmm. how do you connect those things if you don't know? Um, so I guess I say we all just need to learn Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. <laughs> to understand. Outside of that, I think that there's enough to find out that we can follow Jesus faithfully. Yeah. You know, all of this is like yeah. interested in getting into is like, I wish that it wasn't that, but it's also like, it's not something that's going to stop us. Yeah, for me, I just look at it sometimes as like it's been mudded down so mm-hmm. much that certain things lose their significance. Yeah. And losing the significance of what the afterlife is, is very interesting. And I can't remember where I heard it or even if it's true, but like I thought I heard someone say that Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. But again, it 
I could be I've wrong. I've heard that a lot. I've never verified it. Yeah. So, but just the idea that he is talking about this afterlife more uh, than what we presume sometimes and this final destination of what it looks like. If we look at what the key theme of the, the Bible is, is like the there's two ways, one of life and one of death, just kind of like what we talked about with the Didache, um, that there is more of this warning of what the life of death looks like or what it's going to actually be than uh you know, the way of life. The way of life is like, yeah, you, you get God and you get this relationship with him. But death is like, there's layers and depths to it. Even uh, I think somewhere in, in what we've already covered in Enoch, there was like, uh, or it might be in the next one. I prepped for the next episode and the episode after that. So my brain is just Enoch saturated. Uh, but where there's a place for the righteous, mm-hmm. the unrighteous, and then those who are like really, really like, mm-hmm. no, we didn't, we're never going to repent at all. Yeah. Um, but we kind of lose all that with just simply putting it into one word. Yeah. And I think that that's the reality of things when they get muddied is because when we communicate these things, if you're communicating things that are muddy and somebody's trying to make sense of it mm-hmm. and God gave us intellect and he gave us insight and he gave us minds that can put things together. And if someone's just like, that doesn't make sense, man. You know, even by your own things that you're trying to tell me, like that doesn't make sense. Yeah. It can give people cause to not dig in or accept, you know, the gospel and the real mm-hmm. you know, point behind it. Cause you're like, well, you're telling me this is what the afterlife is like, or this is this, or this is that. And it's just like, first of all, how do you know? Second of all, I've looked at the things and you don't even understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Or if you're telling me that that's what it is, then like, it's all screwy. You know what I mean? So I think that whether it's with afterlife or other things to bring clarity, again, going back to the way that we talk about Trinity and, you know, there's just these different things that when we just lump everything in together, it's like, well, who are you praying to? Are you praying to the Father? Are you praying to Jesus? Are you praying to the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. And in which scenario does each one of those mm-hmm. members of the Trinity do something because you talk about them all the same. The Bible doesn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's a lot like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we do still have eight chapters left. We do. I don't have much on the last eight chapters because like 28, 29, 30 and 31 are like very short. I do want to go back though to a few things. I want to just clarify better for yes. myself. So if the- anything, I've muddied a lot through this episode, <laughs> the revelation thing, Revelation 79. Uh, so the woman, uh, Babylon, the, the woman is there and it says, so I'll actually go to eight. Uh, the beast you that you saw, it was and now is no more, but is about to come up out of the abyss uh, and go to its destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel when they see the beast that was and is not and yet will be. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, John did see seven heads and seven mountains. And, and again, like there's that mountain play here that, you know, when we see it in Enoch, uh, it's talking about so many things. But yeah, Enoch talking about those seven mountains being like good and glorious mountains, mm-hmm. those mountains in Revelation being on the negative side, which right. is just the way the imagery is used and understood, going back to that whole point. And then the other thing was I actually am going to read some of chapter 25 uh, when it talks about that fragrant fruit. Mm. And as for this fragrant tree, no mortal is permitted to touch it until the great day, the great judgment, when he will take vengeance on all and bring everything to its consummation forever. 
it will be for food to the chosen ones. It will be transplanted to the holy place, to the temple of the Lord, the perpetual king. Uh, then they will rejoice and be with joy and be glad, and they will enter into the holy place, and its fragrance will be in their bones, and they will live a long life on earth, such as your fathers lived. And in Third days, no sorrow or plague or torment or calamity will touch them. Then I bless the God of glory, the perpetual king, who has prepared such a thing for the righteous and has created them and promised to give it to them. So clarifying why I thought that was so cool Mm -hmm. was that the fragrance was actually in them, that if it was the tree of life, that life was now moving into them. The visual for me was just, you ever see Charlie Brown? Uh, the stinky kid? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the stinky kid. It like you see the fumes coming off of him and they're all like squiggly and dark. And you're yeah. like, obviously he's the stinky kid. Uh, but like the fragrance of of this would just be more of something that's like good, right? Like mm-hmm. if you've ever been around someone who has really good conditioner or detergent and you're like, oh, that's a nice smell. Like that just per- life perpetuates out of them in a scent. And that's where I was really trying to remember like, I thought that was cool. I'm trying to figure out why, but I think I rambled on that point and I wanted to clarify that more because it was a really cool thing to me. And to relate this, because bringing in this tree of life and we had it in Genesis, we have it Mm -hmm. in Revelation, we have it here. Um, Again, I just see that who gets to eat of this and it's the righteous, right? It's the righteous and those on whom God has been merciful really when you're looking at the judgment you know it is a time of god giving mercy because i'm not perfect i'm not deserving even though Mm -hmm. i've I've turned towards him and i'm walking in that direction it's just like it's still on his mercy anything that happens from that point right and so when we look at that and him allowing us to come in and eat of these things i guess this is my little conspiracy part that i haven't put into the episode yet given the last couple of (laughs) the amount that those with money and power are trying to manufacture the fountain of youth. Mm. They are trying to stop aging. They are trying to figure out ways of eternal life. They are trying to produce it for themselves. And it's just so crazy because God is like, I'll give it to you. Mm-hmm. you. You know what I mean? But yeah, I guess that's where you are We're look- still reaching for the thing that we're not supposed to. Just like in the garden. Well, it was the tree of wisdom of knowledge, right? That Adam and Eve reached for, and that's what led to everything that we have now. But they're reaching for something. And that's why the way Enoch phrased it, and I've heard other people say this, that the tree of wisdom and the tree of life, it wasn't that they weren't, um, that they couldn't touch them. It's just that they weren't ready. Like it, mm-hmm. there was going to be a time when that was going to be available for them. And I think we even talked about it a little bit with Doug, that like if you look at Adam and Eve, they were almost infant-like. Mm-hmm. Because they just, you know, they, they were full-grown people, but they were new to life. And so there was going to be a time when they were ready, that these things would be given to them, but they weren't ready for it. And it's almost what, the, what even has been paralleled to what the era of the watchers were, was, is that they were giving mankind things that they weren't ready for yet. Yeah. Either weren't ready for or weren't ever supposed to yeah. have. But yeah, with some of the stuff, I don't think a lot of those were that evil, mm-hmm. which is where when I do look at Azazel, Right, his is like warfare and lust. Yeah, and yeah. It's like, yeah, those were legit. The other dude that was like, hey, here's how to do roots. And if you compare it to the the Cain genealogy, where it's mm-hmm. like, and this person was the inventor of like the music and the heart, but like the Cain genealogy is like the one where it's like, no, these are the evil people who are doing. Yeah. So like where music 
maybe we just weren't ready for music at that point, but it was given to them a little bit earlier. Um, that's what I liked about that section too, is that it tells us when we would be ready for that life. Right. And in like what you were saying, that conspiracy side is like, everyone's always chasing for something. And it's like, you're just not ready for that yet. And it was the same thing with wisdom. Well, it's a weird thing. And just as we're talking about it, to be able to submit in obedience to God all the way until death, Mm -hmm. right? Not looking to avoid it, not looking to whatever, but submitting to God in that and having trust and faith that especially as we're reading Enoch, we get like, man, what the resurrection is like and what the holding places Mm -hmm. are like and what all this is. And just trusting that like, no, 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 I will enter into that place. But kind of like David saying, don't leave me in that place. Yeah. And to enter in with the faith that we can face death and it's overcome because Jesus overcame it. And Mm -hmm. he's teaching us that way. Right. Versus I think the people trying to figure it out here, just like, nope, I'm not going to face death. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to submit to God. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was funny because me and Justine were talking about something and I don't even remember how it came to like my thought processes, but uh, you remember, and I, I don't know if this is like nineties or early two thousands, but so many people wanting to be, um, what is it? Cryogenetically Mm -hmm. frozen. Frozen. Yeah. To like, well, I don't want to die, but right before I'm about to die, like do that. And when you find the cure for what's ever ailing me, bring me back to life and then do it. And I just thought like, Again, it's it's us as people grasping so much for something that we shouldn't. And not to say that life isn't, you know, we shouldn't be grasping for life, but there's life lived here, but then there's like the real life. And the, the picture you're seeing is like, there's the real life is saved for the righteous, the people who waited it out and followed correctly. Yeah. I think that that's where Paul talks about like, hey, if there's really not the resurrection, if that ain't the thing, mm-hmm. above all people, we're to be pitied. Yeah, yeah. Because we submitted ourselves to this, mm-hmm. and we don't get that at the end. Like it's a self recognition. You're like, yeah, I get what you guys are saying. Like, if there's no resurrection and that's not what there is to look forward to, then it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, then we're all just gonna die. And yeah, do what you want. I know that I'm extrapolating on the point that he was making a little bit, but you can see the honesty in it. Yeah. Uh, other than that, I just got a few notes uh, for chapter thirty two. Like yeah. I said, well, looking the, at that 28 through 36, I that's where I got ahead of myself with those cardinal directions. Mm-hmm. So that's where uh, 28 through 33, that's a journey to the east. You have 34, a journey to the north, 35, a journey to the west, and 36, a journey to the south. So, but you were saying you had something on 33? Uh, 32, just real quick. 32. And it's just a quick note that he sees the tree of wisdom there. Um, and that Father Stephen DeYoung on this part says, it is reaffirmed here that it is not that the tree itself is a wicked or evil thing, but that like the knowledge given by the watchers, it was knowledge not to be seized by man, but rather given to God at a proper time. So I should have just read that earlier because that's summarizing what we've talked about, that it, that these things were there to be given by God at a proper time. Yeah, so to give that, he's talking about, I came to the Garden of Righteousness, and I saw beyond those trees many other large ones growing there. They're fragrant, sweet, large ones with much elegance and glorious. And the tree of wisdom, of which one eats and knows great wisdom, was among them. It looked like the colors of the carob tree, its fruit like very beautiful grape clusters, and the fragrance of this tree travels and reaches afar. And I said, this tree is beautiful, and its appearance is beautiful and pleasant. The holy angel Raphael, who was with me, responded and said, 
This very thing is the tree of wisdom from which your old father and aged mother, they who are your precursors, ate and came to know wisdom. And consequently, their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and so they were expelled from the garden. Mm-hmm. So even he, he doesn't know what it is. He's like, man, that is a good looking tree. It yeah. smells good. Look at that fruit. Look at the colors on that thing. And you can see how that's how it's described in Genesis, mm-hmm. right? And it's pleasing to the eye and they went and they ate of the fruit. And yeah. So just again, that it was destined to be given just like by but God at a proper time. Yeah. Because in that garden of righteousness, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and it still is there and he's seeing it. So that's really all I had. Uh, I don't know if you had anything else you want to touch on it. I got like just some summary thoughts. Yeah. Through all of these, when he's going in these directions, um, again, it's using a language to where he's like, man, we went over here. We went to the extreme ends and there were three gates of heaven that I saw and those were opened up. And he's talking about these gates of heaven, right? And within those gates, then he's talking about, um, again, the four winds. Mm-hmm. And that, like, this is where the four winds are, which, again, that's an old term that gets used through a lot of stuff. And then in three of the open gates, it's talking about blowing through cold hail, frost, snow, dew, and rain, right? And just looking at all of these natural things that are coming through these gates of heaven. When you get to the end of 36, he's talking about there's these gates, and then there's small gates above them. And one of these small gates that pass the stars of heaven, and they travel along the path that's shown. But when he's looking at all these things, right, to where he's being shown these things and all of these natural things of the earth, the end result of it, he says, and when I saw this, I blessed and I shall always bless the Lord of glory who performed great and blessed miracles in order that he may manifest his great deeds to his angels, the winds, and to the people so that they might praise the effect of all his creation so that they might see the effect of his power and praise him in respect to the great work of his hands and bless him forever. So he's seeing all of these marvelous things. He's like, man, I want to bless him because look at the work that he's doing. And he's revealing himself to us. He's revealing his glory. And it, it brings up Paul, right? Mm-hmm. And like, Man, even those who haven't heard, they can look at creation and see that there's a creator behind this thing, right? And I think of that and I just think of, again, going back to Genesis because we've done so much, God created the earth to be good. And for mm. humans on it to be very good. And it's like, I think we have a really cool planet. If we would stop killing each other, like this is a dope place to be. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Man, open your eyes to creation. I know that we can't see the stars, so we can't open our eyes to those. Thanks, light pollution. right? <laughs> but if you've ever gotten away a little bit and been able yeah. to see that, imagine that that for almost all of human history is what you were seeing every single night was that. You know mm. what I mean? And even the elements coming in and, you know, the wind and the weather and the changing of the seasons and all the things that happen and the beauty of life that takes place. I was like, if we would take our eyes off of ourselves, off of our own greed and realize like, yeah, there is a creator that created all of this stuff. And he gave me life for however long I have life to be on this earth. I can praise him for that. Yeah. Life, life can be a cool and great thing. Not without like it'll have struggles. It'll have trials. You know, those things will come. But that's where Jesus, when he talks about having eternal life, is like, it's to know the Father and the Son whom he sent. Like, we can experience eternal life here in the way that we were created to. Mm-hmm. And I think that to be a redeemed person on this planet is that our view, even of nature, should be kind of similar to what Enoch is coming up with mm-hmm. here. It's like, man, creator is awesome. Yeah. Like, I'm going to bless you for this now because I'm seeing it. I'm going to bless you about this forever. I like I don't that. Just so much in the uh, the otherworldly visions and whatnot. And it just brought me back to, I don't get otherworld. Like, I'm not living in that place. I'm not 
there. I'm here. And I can bless God here. Yeah. For these things that he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a really good point. Uh, just looking at everything in a whole, like, I guess getting into the book of Watchers, um, maybe I made the mistake that a lot of people do where it's like just about Nephilim and the flood. Mm-hmm. But it, it describes so much more. It's their spiritual geography of the entire creation in a way that, you know, that's accepted by the New Testament writers and the fathers and their understanding of what's invisible. Like we were talking about the Hades, hell, Sheol, and all that stuff. And then in creation itself, what's visible by creation, like you were talking about the end of uh, the Watchers, just the blessing God for it. Um, but it also describes like spiritual locations. It's an overview of everything, but it's like here are these spiritual locations, uh, and it sets the table for what's coming, mm-hmm. The specifically Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Um, and in the next portion, we're going to look really at this concept of the Son of Man, because that's huge in the parables, but it really just sets the stage for a lot of that. And here's a mistake I made reading Enoch the first time before studying. Uh, reading Enoch thinking it was written during Enoch's lifetime. Oh. Uh, because then you're, then you start, it's that, uh, what, what do we, what, how do we put it? The, you start making too many connections mm-hmm. that aren't necessary. When I then studied Enoch and read it for Enoch is second temple writing. Uh, so you're, like we said, we're looking at what, 200 AD, 300 AD, maybe somewhere around that time frame of BC you're talking about. Oh yeah. BC. Yeah within that time frame before Jesus, then it starts making sense to where the connections, where whoever the author of the Book of the Watchers is, mm-hmm. is pulling from this and that and pulling from other writings, uh, even to where there's a parallels between Ezekiel and Isaiah and certain things. Then you're seeing where the New Testament writers are pulling from, and it makes more sense to me. It just, it, the way it adds up, even when you're looking at, okay, the visionary, that the visions of... A revelation on how he's seen seven stars and you're like oh there's seven angels seven archangels mm-hmm. and where i mean if you're just reading the bible there's two we got gabriel and michael right uh, if you read then some of the other stuff get then we got Tobit in yeah, there, you, get raphael. You, you get raphael but then they're like no there's seven of them and one's a pasta guy he's really cool uh, <laughs> but i think that's the mistake i made and i end this episode with that because uh, i think that's the mistake we could make reading this first section that it's just about the flood it's just about the nephilim and the watchers it is, but there's so much more depth to it. It, it comes to much more of a head at the end in, in putting all the pieces together. Yeah, so in putting those together, I like how you're kind of wrapping up this section. And I feel like it was a theme that I was stuck on earlier in the conversation. But to bring it back to a wrap up, when you're looking at these things, it's definitely expanding on Genesis 6 and that, mm-hmm. right? You got the Watchers, you got the Nephilim, you got that, like you are saying. But really, it's like, what's being messaged here? Mm-hmm. And to go to, as you were saying, there are evils that came upon the world that brought things to men that we were not supposed to have, right? Mm -hmm. There are things that are foreign to what we were created for that entered in and had an effect. And God's stance against those evils is that there's no forgiveness for those things, Mm -hmm. right? There is no redemption. I'm talking about those evils that personifies them, you know, as these, all the watchers, the 200 of them with their 20 leaders and everything there, right? And he's saying, no, 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 that's, that was not right. That thing happening was like, that's put away, chaining those up, right? But then when you get to then humans, and then you move into, when it breaks down into 
Sheol for the humans, and you had those three or four places, right? And you had those that are never going to repent. You have those that were martyred. You have those that are the righteous. And then it's looking at, okay, me and you and everyone we know are walking this world where these evils have been unleashed, where there are forces in the world, you know, and if you want to link it to this, or if you just want to take a more broad view, biblically, whatever, my goal is to be counted among the righteous. Mm -hmm. Death is coming. That's where I need to end up. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say a thing that might make some people upset, but it's how it is. Go read Jesus's own words of what a righteous person is, what a righteous person does and doesn't do. You can get a short list by going back to the Didache and looking at the way of life and the way of death. That's that, right? Mm -hmm. I fully believe that we need to be forgiven, that Jesus' blood, his atonement covers those things, that forgiveness comes from there, right? But there is a thing that goes on of a misconception where people say, well, no, it's all Jesus' righteousness. There's nothing I can do to earn my salvation. And people twist that into thinking, I can allow sin to stay in my life to extents that I am not listening to the spirit's conviction of the thing i'm not turning away from sin i'm not turning towards the goodness that god created me for but it's okay because it's all jesus's righteousness imputed to me right it's mm -hmm. his righteousness it's not mine my righteousness are like filthy rags and there's all these things that get quoted and it's just like go listen to jesus himself mm -hmm. on what righteousness is you actually need to be transformed by his righteousness to become like his righteousness and to walk this earth like that, it's not just all of a sudden going to happen when you die. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't know how to end that without continuing off into that rant. But that's when I look at this. It's just like, yeah, it's a vision site, but it's like, what is it messaging? Yeah. It's like, there is a place for the dead. I'm going to die. Where am I going to go? And obviously, this was written before Christ. We know that Christ comes in, empties out Hades. We get to go be with him. But again, it's for the righteous. And I think that that's a huge thing when you look at Enoch's righteousness, you look at those who are redeemed or the righteous, right? And mm -hmm. I just think that that's a huge thing. Okay, what I take away from all that? Am I just going to trip out on like, dang, the underworld's crazy? Mm -hmm. I was like, why did I need to know that? I think what I really liked about it too, and one of the big things that popped out to me, especially this, this last portion, was the like you're talking about that message and theme. And to me, what I'm getting is that the places that we're told that are for the bad people weren't for the bad people. Like when you look at here's where the abyss is and, and here's where Hades is and hell, that these were specifically reserved for the angels, the watchers, for Azazel because he was running amok like a crazy person uh, and their children. But then you do have like Gehenna. Yeah. Right? And that's for like people and that's a judgment but, going on there. But it was like the initial thing like that wasn't for us. Right. It's because we allow sin to corrupt and then ultimately change our lives to where we just don't want to repent. You know, it just seemed like the book of Watchers is summarizing like this wasn't meant for people, but because people took what was pleasing to their eye that looked good to them and in their sights, what was good for life today, uh, that they grabbed a hold of that instead of looking for what was good for life tomorrow that they went to a place that they, they eventually we aren't destined for. It's, it's the message of the gospel. Like you were summarizing it up. It's, that's the message of the gospel. It's not meant for us. All we have to do is follow the way of Christ and follow his righteousness and work and move towards it. And if we did that, then we are righteous. But it's when we allow ourselves to drift away or to never really fully accept that, 
that we are unrighteous and two ways, life or death. You know, there, there's no getting around it. But yeah, I I did like the Book of Watchers. The Book of Parables is going to be fun. Um, it might be equally as long as the Book of Watchers. I mean, it's got the breakdown. same number of chapters, basically. It does. Like and they list. are long, too. Um, but yeah, that that's the Watchers. So I am Chris. I'm Yurduk. We are your church friends. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Lester of Lester's Prosthetics, the leading retailer of high-quality prosthetics. It's real talk time. Temptation is everywhere nowadays. We see something or someone and it looks good and pleasing to the eye, and we're drawn to it with desire. At Lester's, we understand this problem. In fact, Lester's understands lust. That's why our in-house team of researchers, scientists, and doctors have been working tirelessly to provide you with a solution. Introducing The Watcher. The Watcher is a cutting-edge prosthetic eye that blurs out anything you find tempting. So how does it work? It's simple. By connecting The Watcher to your brainwaves, it detects what pleases your eye. Once triggered, the watcher immediately blurs out whatever you're lusting after, completely removing it from your vision. Say goodbye to lust once and for all with The Watcher. Don't forget to visit our new location on Fairfax adjacent to the Beef Gristle Mill. Remember, if there wasn't any lust, there wouldn't be Luster's Prosthetics. Luster's Pioneering Prosthetics since 1972. Excluded books of the Bible.